An Englishman in San Diego. At Comics Uncovered, Birmingham 2018. I was very lucky to be invited along to the ICE International Comics Expo in Birmingham this past September to host a couple of panels at the event, but it also gave me the opportunity to participate in the following day's companion event, Comics Uncovered, a hands-on collection of demos, panels, reviews and workshop sessions for both aspiring and established comic creatives to fine-tune their skills and approaches under the watchful eye of some of the best in the business, including John McRae, James Peaty, Tony Lee... Ian Richardson and Steve Tanner. Also in attendance were colour artist John Paul Bove and senior editor for Dark Horse Comics, Daniel Shabon, who kicked off the day with a keynote session in which Daniel gave his perspective on the industry today, what editors are looking for in contemporary comics and how best to get into making comics on a professional level. It was a fascinating session. Enjoy. Okay, well, thank you all very much for coming. There may be a few that... that, uh uh, trickle at the end. Um, my name is John Paul Bove. I'm um, a, a writer and colourist um, for a number of things, uh, but I'm here primarily just to uh, introduce and, and steer along this, this panel today. Um, uh, I have with me Daniel Shabon, uh, who is an editor at Dark Horse. Um, I'm not going to say too much about him because I'm hoping that he will uh, reveal those things uh, to us. Is everybody here an artist? We've got a mixture of people, writers, artists, colourists. So we've got a little bit of everything in the room today. Okay. Um, Daniel, I just wanted to, first of all, so welcome. Um, Thank you. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, a nice golfing clap there. Um, <laughs> so, and I just wanted to, first of all, if you could give us a little background to yourself. Uh, how did you um, come into this wonderful world that we know of as comics? Okay. Um... Uh, well, it's interesting because comics have actually kind of been in my family's blood for a while. My grandfather had worked um, in the 1930s and 40s in a print shop in Brooklyn, New York, where they made comic books. And uh, my father um, grew up there and was an old school comics reader, reading a lot of Golden Age comics, and was a big avid collector of comics and cards, non sports cards. And as a kid, he would always take me to comic shops every week and comic conventions, and we'd collect books together. Um, And then my older brother is a Pulitzer Prize winning author who wrote uh, a book called The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is a big uh, 600-page novel about the history of comic books, Uh, a fictionalized version, but very close to the lives of um, Eisner and uh, Kirby and a few others. Um, and then uh, I've always just wanted to work in either literature as a teacher um, or something related to comics, but I, I wasn't quite sure what I would do because um, I wasn't really drawing and I wasn't really writing. I felt like our family already had a writer, so I didn't need to be, we didn't need two. Um, and at that time, I lived on the East Coast of the United States. I lived in Washington, D.C., and um, eventually, when I decided to go to college, I moved over from uh, the East Coast of the United States over to the West Coast and ended up in Portland, Oregon, which is a huge comic book town. Um, that originally started with, I think, Dark Horse there, because Dark Horse has been there now for almost 30 years, maybe a little over 30 years at this point. 
and then Oni Press is there. Image moved up there about two to three years ago. We have a ton of great, very unique uh, independent comic book shops there and a lot of great bookstores there, including Powell's, which is a very famous, uh, huge bookstore. It's the size of a city block, and it's four stories. You can get lost in there. Um, and a lot of great... Uh, university literature programs and so when I went there I got a master's degree in uh, book publishing and then I ended up getting an internship at Dark Horse um, where I started working on all the Mike Mignola books and I was working on those for about five years um, and I've worked on all kinds of different books with Mignola. I worked on Hellboy and BPRD and Lobster Johnson and Witchfinder and these were actually some of my favorite books before I started working there. BPRD was a great favorite of mine. Um, and eventually, halfway through uh, working there, I made the mistake of going to law school there because mm -hmm. law school is super hard there and very expensive. And so my days at Dark Horse were uh, 7.30 to 5 o'clock, working full-time on probably 30 books a month, and then I'd drive over and a lot of traffic to make class on time at law school and I'd be there until 10.30 at night and uh, it was a pretty rough four years doing that. But working uh, in law ended up being very valuable to me because what I focused on is um, <coughs> copyright law which uh, really ties into book publishing pretty well particularly in comics because there's a rich history in comics that has been... Um, somewhat against uh, people owning their own work that they work on. Uh, and the, of course, the early history of comics, you know, uh, a lot of the creators like Jack Kirby had created these great million-dollar-worthy characters for those companies but did not end up owning them. And some of these uh, creators died without much money at all. Um, and so my focus has been able uh, to work with folks that work on their own creations and own their own creations. Uh, those books, I think, are the most valuable to work on because they're rewarding. The creator deserves to be the owner of what they created and reap the royalties of it. Um, and, you know, it just it's a more enriching experience. So after working... I hope this is not sounding like too much of a monologue. Uh, but uh, after... Uh, being an assistant for Mignola for a long time, that was also a really great experience because that was a lucky experience because he's a master. Uh, so it just was a great apprentice experience working for him, and he's a really nice guy. And I learned a lot from him. And that's a creator-owned comic, too. A lot of people think Hellboy's maybe owned by Dark Horse, but we don't own it. Um, Mike Mignola owns it. If he was unhappy with Dark Horse, he could leave tomorrow. Um, it's probably one of the most successful looks of being a creator-owned comic because he's had it at Dark Horse for over 25 years or so and he's been happy and has had multiple movies including one coming up and uh, he's been doing well and so after working with Mike I decided to try to do my own creator online at Dark Horse um, working on some licensed stuff in between which is always good experience too but a little more difficult um, but uh, so moving into creator own, my own creator own books, I ended up working with folks like Jeff Lemire and uh, Matt Kent and Garth Ennis and uh, Jeff Darrow 
Um, I've worked with a bunch of people. I sometimes just have to look at the wall of the books I'm currently working on to remember who I'm working with. Dave McKean, uh, Neil Gaiman. I, with my literature background, I try to also go after some folks that aren't really known for writing comics but enjoy comics. Um, so one person that I really liked bringing into Dark Horse is Margaret Atwood, um, which was a huge deal. Uh, and she's uh, done three graphic novels with us and has one that uh, the first issue just came out maybe two weeks ago now. Um, and I'm currently working on a licensed uh, comic with William Gibson, who wrote Neuromancer. He uh, uh, did a screenplay for Alien 3. It was the original screenplay, so it's completely different than the final movie. Um, and that launches, I believe, in November. Um, so yeah, I usually I'm just trying to find some creators that I think are interesting and will be good to work with, but also um, some creators that folks aren't usually thinking would play in the comics realm, but are also from like maybe a literature background or a TV background. And so, okay. so yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, and obviously you, you said that you had a little bit of uh, time doing uh, license work and creatoring. Uh, and obviously, part of your creator duties, you know, you were saying you're, you're finding people and, and recruiting people. Um, in terms of the differences between, uh, you know, is there a difference between how you, you put together a project when there's a licensee involved and how you put it together in terms of, um, you know, satisfying just the, the creator? Do you, are you looking for different things from artists or creators in, in, in those fields? Yeah, I, um, so the, I, put aside license projects for a while, and I know that you've worked on license, mm -hmm. a lot of license projects too, so you, you probably have a lot of the same experiences I have when you work with a licensor. When you work with a licensor, and, and most of the times an editor might be assigned uh, to having to work on a license, um, I don't really have to do that anymore. When I started, I would get assigned a lot of licenses, which is great experience for a younger editor, because they're hard. Um, and you have to really filter notes and make them clear because there's a lot of steps. But um, when you have to work for a licensor, you're giving yourself another boss. And most of the time, they're going to be really hard on you and give you notes that are very stickler notes. Um, there was one license that I worked on uh, that was for a video game. And I had to do these four in-game lore books. And they had thousands of illustrations in each book. And I had to hire a team of like 30 different artists. But my, I had one approvals guy. And he was very anal the whole way through and looking at everything with like a magnifying glass. And I spent a year of my life working on this thing. And I just kind of have post-traumatic stress disorder from it. Because there was like, I remember like one illustration out of thousands, there was like a monster that had hundreds of teeth. And he'd be like, tooth 42, needs a little more debris on it. And I was like, this is a waste of all of our time. Not anyone on this planet is going to look at that tooth and say, that tooth is not dirty enough except for you. <laughs> and, uh, and from working with, it's still good to work with people like that because I, I feel like it's helpful to learn how to be slightly combative with a licensor too as an editor. I think because you're the inter intermediary between the creators, the colorists, the letters, and the licensor. 
and I'll usually go to vouch for the creative team over the license area because they're working hard. These guys don't see how hard they're working, and they're just looking at a page really quickly and not considering that, and they're also being inconsistent usually of notes. Um, it's not always that negative, too. I shouldn't say that much while I'm on camera. But, yeah, I've had plenty of good experiences with licensors, too, but these are just some of the negative ones. Um, but uh, I usually try to go to a bat for my creators as much as I can to avoid unnecessary notes. Um, but, uh, yeah, working on licenses can still be fun. Once in a while you get really good licensors that will give you no notes or, or an extra voice of encouragement to work on a book. Uh, one of the best licensors uh, I was telling you earlier was uh, I worked on some He-Man books uh, for Mattel. I worked on five... Um, not comic books, but one was like an art book, uh, a character guide. All these books are huge. Um, I know so much about He-Man now, it's ridiculous. Uh, and then I worked on a few comics as well, and they were great to work with. They gave me very little notes. They really let me kind of put them together and be creative myself. Um, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, but the positives of a creator-owned project is that Instead of a licensor being here, the editor in the middle, and the, uh, the creators on the other end, um, it's just the editor and the, the creative team, the, the writer, artist, letterer, colorist. And you're all working together. And it's a pretty usually positive environment. Once in a while, you'll have some creators that just don't mesh. They'll find that out later when they start working together. But most of the times, they... Uh, they get along really well, and it's just a, a, an environment where ideas are being thrown around and people are really positive. So it's very different than a license project where you're being usually kind of bombarded with notes um, and having to really push to get something out at a specific time because license comics usually are tied into when a movie might be coming out or a TV show is going to launch. Uh, a creator-owned comic really can come out whenever the creators want it to come out. So most of the time when I'm making a schedule with creators, I'm saying, don't rush yourself, take your time. No one knows about this book yet, so why don't you work really hard on it, make it perfect, and then um, let's get it out when you're ready to really start to hustle and promote the book because <clears throat> a lot of the times I think 10% should be making the book and 90% is telling the world why they should buy it because a lot of I'll get creators that pitch me stuff and it sounds good but the next step is you got to tell random strangers that don't know you and might not care about you why you think they should buy your book and that's really hard it can't just be the publisher that does that it really has to be the creator you are the driving force you think this idea is important you need to show the world why and sometimes the best person to talk to might not be a publisher it's a comic book retailer Tell them about your story. If they sound like their buyers are, will be interested in something like that, I think you got something cooking. So That's a really good point. Uh, I will just echo the, um, the licensed um, side of things. Again, predominantly, my experiences have been great. Um, but I have had the about five minutes before print deadline notes come through yeah. from an editor. It's just about to... So we have bank holidays here, which is a, sort of like a national holiday, about to face an incredibly long drive back down to see my parents. And I happened to stop just before and look at my 
emails. I'd submitted that last page. I thought, we're done. It's great. <laughs> and this sheet of notes was there. Yeah. And one of them involved a page. It was all flashbacks. And it was slightly sepia-tinged. And one of the notes came back from the licensor uh, that this character's jacket wasn't the right blue. So I said, <laughs> went back to it and said, it's, the whole page is kind of sepia. Like, no one's in exactly the right colours. Can uh-huh. you maybe explain that? And the editor's response was, these are the notes after I've already explained everything. Oh, no. So, you, so I was very grateful that, to have an editor on side kind of trying to filter out the worst of it. But um, as a result, that page ended up seeing print as largely sepia with one very blue coat. Yeah. <laughs> Which, if you've seen Schindler's List, the sort of the red coat moment, every time I see it, I'm there going, oh, it, it's like nails down a black one. And they're going, I really wish I could have just made that look better than it did. So you do have those, those moments. Yeah. Um, but again, it's useful having someone yeah. you know, on your side to go, well, you know, if I can just explain the intent behind these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, that's the thing with licenses. The, sometimes the people you're dealing with are not creative people. Sure. And they, they want to show that they're interested and have feedback, but it's not necessarily in the same language. Yeah. Uh, that I find tricky sometimes. It's not story-focused. It's and, and it's not their full-time job either. Usually a licensor has a different role at the companies they work on, and then they're approving something on the side. So they've been assigned to uh, to look over and approve what you're turning in, but that's the least important thing in their lives right now because they actually have a full-time job at the wherever they're working, whether or not it's a video game company or a television studio. So yeah, okay, thank you. For that. Um, and so, um, in terms of what you're looking for in creators, what what is it? What attracts you to you know if you're packaging a book or if you're you know, a portfolio reviews and looking at stuff, what is it that kind of draws your eye or catches your attention? Any in particular that, uh, historically, that's kind of stood out to you? Or um, I guess it's kind of all over the place. Like, of course, interesting stories is probably an easy answer. Um, a lot of the times when I'm finding uh, creators to bring to a team, there might be someone already there, we're just missing a component. So... I know recently for some, uh, like, uh, I, some of the Jeff Lemire books that I've worked on under his uh, Black Hammer universe at Dark Horse, Dean Ormston is the main co-creator of the comic, but he's only been able to draw the main Black Hammer series because um, he had some medical issues a few years ago and it affected his drawing hand. Um, so he can only work on that one comic at a time. Um, but we've had all these uh, tie-in series to Black Hammer, and uh, we've been able to hire a bunch of different artists for that. And so usually that process is me looking at artists online or folks I've met at conventions, and I'll take the samples of art that they've sent me, and I'll run them by a creator uh, like Jeff Lemire. And I try to gauge his tastes because um, I know some of the types of art that he likes and enjoys. And so I'll, I'll usually look for some styles close to that and maybe try to put in someone new that I kind of find interesting at the same time. So I'll try to run maybe like five to ten different names so I don't overwhelm someone either and just show samples of art. Um, and then for a licensed uh, comic, it's usually easier because most of the licensors are just you're shooting in the dark, so you want to show them as much as you can. So I'll usually show like 
I don't know, uh, 10 different writer suggestions. Those, it usually, it's really hard to pick a writer out of the blue uh, who doesn't have a, any kind of publishing background because that's how you're going to get a licensor to understand who they are. They're not going to read a script and then approve it. You're going to have to say, this writer has been published at this company and worked on this title. Um, even if it's something small, it's still something. Um, and so that helps a writer get a licensed uh, gig. And then um, an artist for a licensed gig, I'll usually take like three pieces of their best looking art, in my opinion, and show those to a licensor. And then a licensor might narrow it down out of 15 to 30 people to three, and then I have to go after those three people. And whoever says they're available and they can work on this time frame, then I hire those people. So. I usually, as much as I prefer to work on creator-owned um, comics, it takes a lot of steps to get there. And I usually will s recommend to anyone that's brand new in comics um, and has no publishing background to try to get an opportunity working in a licensed comic. Uh, one, it will groove you into being a hard-working artist and writer because you're going to get a lot of notes. But also, it's going to give you a resume of having worked on a a title that people will recognize, like, oh, I worked on Judge Dredd, or I worked on The Matrix, or um, it just, it's a recognizable name to the next person that's going to hire you. Um, so, yeah. And I think as well, with, with, with a, a licensed thing in some way, um, you're able to go, okay, I know what, you know, Donatello looks like, and that's your drawing of Donatello, so there's, there's some aspect of going, well, I can see that you can you can draw like the thing is supposed to look. Yeah. Whereas to some extent, having lots of creator-owned pages as samples may be difficult to kind of go. Well, he works really good, but I, I don't know how would you draw a, you know, a robot or you know. I guess in some ways it can be hard to something out interpolate. Of the blue. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, if you're sending samples to creators that look a bit like the stuff that they're doing, in some ways it's you know licensed is a is a way of having a. A measurable line to say yeah. well, how close to that can you get. Licensors will usually have a bible of some sorts mm. or model sheets to work off of, but it sometimes it depends on the licensors because if it's Ninja Turtles or Transformers or something like that, you're going to get thousands of different characters that you're going to need to be familiar with and get them to be on model to look just like the uh, where they look in everywhere else. Um, Creator-owned, the person that's trying to make sure everything looks the same as uh, they have looked in previous issues is the editor. So it's a little more casual. I tend to be more easygoing. But I do... Um, I, uh, I know Black Hammer, like, the, the back of my hand. So, like, it's, you become an expert in things that are weird to be experts in. I know a lot about Hellboy just from five years of working on it. So if there's ever like a Hellboy trivia, I would rock it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, when I'm hiring a new artist to work on a Black Hammer title, um, and if a character from uh, an older issue pops up, I'll screenshot that, and whatever images I can find, I'll assemble them, and I'll send that to the new artist or colorist directly and give them the reference. So um, it's usually pretty easy work, because I know usually where all the different characters are so I have to say it is lovely when an editor does do that and, yeah. and you don't have to ask because I always find it's four o'clock in the morning when the deadline's looming you get to the page with the there's a character Transformers is one that's terrible for you don't know what characters look like from the back yeah 
and you suddenly get there and go, oh, I really need some reference for that, uh, but everyone's gone to bed, what do I do? Um, you can Google it at that point. Well, That's yeah. one of the helpful things sometimes with famous licenses is some of that reference can be online too, yeah. although you might find fan art and then that will be, fan art might not be exactly the best reference either. No. Yeah. Um, particularly what people uh, draw them doing sometimes with Transformers, but yeah. um, that, that's another uh, session coming up like, after dark, that one. Um, so in terms of, uh, so we talked about, obviously this, this is primarily about people wanting to, to kind of, you know, what does it take to work for Dark Horse? Uh, you know, in, in terms of qualities for, for an artist, one um, editor uh, put it to me in these terms, that there was sort of there were three key things that he was looking for in terms of creators and art in particular, and if you had any one of those three things, you'd probably get some work. Uh, and those were that you were very talented, very fast, or very nice. Um, and if you had any two of those, the chances were you would get regular work. Yeah. Uh, if you're all three of those things, then they you'd probably be the most in-demand person. Yeah. Is there any sort of, uh, that yardstick has always kind of felt right to me. Are there any yeah. sort of, in, in terms of how uh, you feel about it or the people that you've built relationships with, you know, people who want to work for you in, in, in the long run, how does, um, is there any sort of... I think those three tips are actually pretty good. Um, I will emphasize being nice is actually great because... Uh, you know, you might not realize it, but editors tend to work with a lot of people who aren't usually that nice. The editor is the person in between and trying to get stuff out on time and working really hard and really busy and works on a lot of different books at once. And they're stressed. I mean, I was up at 2 o'clock this morning going through my email, just getting back to people and making sure the wheels are running on my books. And uh, I've been doing that for 10 years. Uh, and I like doing it, but it's a when you work with a nice creator you really appreciate it because sometimes you work with people that are just jerks and uh, usually they're not new people they'll be people who have been around for a while or in uh, those uh, relationships are kind of suck just because the editor is really working hard to make your book awesome and please you and, and get it out on time and make it fit your vision so it kind of hurts the experience of working and publishing when you're working with someone who's just not very nice. So working with nice people is always a good thing, I'm sure, in every single profession, though, too. Um, what I guess uh, I would recommend, um, besides those three points, is to go into a comic shop and look at what's coming out right now. Uh, open up the books. The new books uh, coming out every Wednesday. I don't know if it's Wednesday here or not. Is it? Okay. Yeah. And uh, those are your competitors. And they're super talented. And there's more of them every year. Um, so there's a huge, huge pool of people to choose from. So why? what am I uh, seeing in you that I'm going to see over someone else? You're going to have to be thinking about those things. But these are your competitors. Are you going to be... Uh, am I going to hire you over someone like James Heron or Tansi Zanjic or um, Mike Mignola did a cover for me recently. Um, I always try to bring in new people when I can, but sometimes you really need to be able to work with some established people too because people who are going into comic shops are usually buying a book 
because of it's from an established creator already. Um, but um, there are opportunities. You just have to work really hard to get there. You have to constantly be working on improving your art. I think that's a never-ending experience. But you have to be very cognizant of how talented the market is. And you have a lot of challengers. So you need to work really hard to be just mm -hmm. as good as who your competition is. Um, there's so many good, talented people in comics right now. And um, I'm sure someone in this room is going to be one of those people. But it's not going to be easy. So um, yeah, hopefully that's not a pessimistic note. But... Uh, a, more of a note of encouragement like take that challenge so. absolutely and, and I think as well uh, one thing certainly I've found because people will come to me and ask you know ad advice as well is um, generally I find people who doubt themselves and doubt their work are the people who are better yeah and, and I, I feel a permanent sense of a little bit of doubt is helpful because you forever then find yourself going oh I can do better than this I can do better than this. It's it's the people who come and kind of go, I deserve this. Well, uh, the, the, some sometimes they have they can cash the check, but sometimes they're kind of they're going well. But you've you've stopped learning. You're not trying to better yourself. You've gone. This is as good as it gets. Well, note that even some of the folks that we consider the best are are like you said. Like they stress out about their own work constantly. I remember when I was working on the Hellboy books. I I talked to Mike Mignol on the phone. And he was supposed to turn in a cover, and he told me something like he had just kept working on this one and then kept throwing it away. And I was like, you're throwing it away? I'll take it. Like, <laughs> what are you throwing away your art for? I want that cover. Like, it's, I'm sure it looks great, whatever he threw away, but, like, the fact that he's, he has opportunities where he's displeased <coughs> with his art sometimes uh, frequently is kind of amazing because I think everything he does looks great. Uh, I can't believe he threw away his own art. Uh, and uh, Or Jeff Darrow, I just remember walking around Artist Alley with him one time, and he would look at someone's art, and he's like, man, that guy's drawings, it makes me want to break my own fingers. Uh, like He, he uh, sometimes can be self-deprecating on his own art, even though I think his art is amazing. Um, so even some of these great, talented uh guys have just been around for a while um, they're still going through that There's, they still I assume behave how they behaved from the beginning it's just you're going to have that stress but they're still working on it and they've done well so yeah, it's so not easy but no but I would, I would as I, echoing what you've said I, I do take that as a positive yeah. I think having that self doubt is actually a good We've all seen X Factor. It's just being human. America's got talent. The people that come on who go, I'm going to be a star, and no one's ever told them, oh, actually, you could definitely do, yeah. probably do with some singing lessons. It helps to it? be an underdog. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so in terms of, uh, there's sort of, you know, you've, you've looked at a lot of portfolios here in San Diego and probably 100 places. Are there key things that you sort of find as commonalities that artists need to, uh, you know, to, to work on, obviously, Lots of people will say, uh, you know, like life drawing and and um, you know, getting your um, proportions and 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 poses and things right. Is there anything in particular that you kind of find people stumble on or? Um, I don't think it's a particular thing when it comes to like showing me a script or an art style per se, because I think art styles should be varied and some things can be 
very sketchy and still look great and some things can be very detailed and look bad. Um, but I think one thing to consider when talking to an editor is time. Um, editors are always really busy um, and so they always are constantly thinking about their time. And you know, I don't think that's every editor either, but I think that is a common trait. And um, I don't know, I guess looking back, uh, having talked to other editors um, and gone to a lot of shows like this, um, just to try to keep uh, uh, your package that you're giving to a, an editor or whenever sending a pitch kind of short and specific and to the point. Don't send 40 pages of something. They're not going to read that. Um, don't email them constantly because then they'll start ignoring you. Um, be nice. Yeah, being really nice to an editor. If there's a way that you can be helpful to them, I think that is a valuable thing. I don't know specifically what that would be. Like if, if you're a letterer and an, edi an editor really needs <coughs> to hire a, letter a letterer right away and you somehow learn of that, I don't know. <coughs> volunteer it. Uh, but find a way to form a relationship with an editor without driving them crazy. Um, talk to them on social media. Not often, but like maybe like a few of the things that they say. Um, find a way to engage with them where they kind of become familiar with you, but you're not overdoing it. I think letter columns are actually a really great way to do that. There's not really that many letter columns these days, but... Uh, I do a few in some of the books I work on, and a, a letter column is really uh, a way of communication in the end between the le the editor and the uh, the fan, and sometimes the fan who wants to break into comics. And when that person is sending in that letter, the editor is really forced to think about what that person is saying and analyze it and. Uh, they remember your letters, and uh, they remember your names when you're sending in your fan letters, and some of those people get hired and become comic creators. Uh, I think Kurt Busiek, uh, who created Astro City, he originally, I believe, got hired from writing a fan letter. Um, so those are good opportunities for um, trying to engage with, with editors. But um, yeah, it shows like these, like, I, I, I don't... There's not really any specific rules, um, but try to show your best work, what you feel like is your best work, and um, don't show too much of it. Um, and, and yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing as well that I, I found is uh, when having portfolio reviews and having meetings with editors um, is, is sometimes the answer or the feedback you get is not always exactly what you want to hear but yeah. it's nearly always what you need to hear yeah. uh, and I've had some friends who've had portfolio reviews particularly the licensed stuff and the editor said well actually you know the, the licensor or license, yeah, would, would be you know once likes it in this particular direction and yeah. they felt disheartened because their work's been rejected and I've said to them well no what you've been given is, is a leg up because now you know yeah. some information other people don't have You're, you know when you redo this your, your work's going to be so much closer to, you know, where it needs to be uh, to, to jump through those hoops. Um, so, again, it's, it's uh, you know, constructive feedback, I think. I think, you know, there can be 
um, destructive portfolio reviews as well. Yeah, and a, another good source for feedback um, would be, uh, uh, depending on which towns all of you live in, is to become acquainted with other comics creators or people working in publishing. Um, but comics is a really good, tight community, um, a lot of support. And um, if you become colleagues with people who are currently being published in comics, they will vouch for you to try to get you gigs. And sometimes those are some of the more likely opportunities to get you hired or tried out. Um, because those people have relationships with editors already, and they'll try to suggest their friends to get hired too. They're like, oh, this guy's really good, he's new, he's looking for a gig, I'm sure you can get you what you need on the time you need and start when you need him to start. You should check out his stuff. And the editor who already has that relationship with that person uh, will probably feel probably compelled to take him up on that advice because he wants to keep the current relationship good with the freelancer that he's working with. Um, so, yeah, if you're not already, I'd really try to uh, make friends with other people who are um, getting published in comics. And it doesn't necessarily need to be in person. Uh, I mean, there's comics creators all over the world, and a lot of them have never met each other, but you see them engaging all the time on Twitter and Instagram and uh, Facebook sometimes. Uh, Twitter, I mean, there's a lot of people just talking on there and... and being friends, and uh, it's a good support group. So try to uh, engage with those folks, show your art on Instagram, uh, and make friends, because um, those are going to be people who will come back for you if, uh, if they like you and they like your work. And I think that's what's really important, because so many of us, and I've definitely been the same looking to, when looking to break in, that so much of it you spend time on your own. You know, I'm, I'm going to write this script, I'm going to colour this page, I'm going to draw this. Um, but when you're in comics, it's collaborative. It's so important, those relationships between the writer and the editor and the, the colourist and the inker and what have you, that, as you say, learning that collaborative approach before you break in, you know, getting to know people who perhaps like the way you, you know, like I coloured other people's work and they responded to it positively and they, when they broke in, said, well, this, this guy does good work on my work. So definitely getting to know people and, and, uh, and working together, I think, is, is so important. I will say, too, if, if and when engaging online with other creators or just talking about comics in general... Um, Editors are seeing a lot of those conversations too. So when I see certain creators being negative uh, on a publisher or another creator or a license, um, you don't usually forget those from as an editor. So uh, it helps to kind of be nice online too, uh, particularly Twitter, which uh, can be a pretty toxic place too. Um, but being nice online... Um, there's people seeing what you say, so yeah. just pretend you're saying <laughs> what you're saying in front of your parents or something. I don't know. Like, just be cautious because there's a lot of people you don't know that can see what you're saying and they might consider not hiring you because of what you might be saying, too. Like, oh, this person might not be great to work with. Look how nasty they're being online. So being nice is kind of a key Thing. I, th I think it's a strong chance that I may not get a job in the current White House oh, no. based on my Twitter. But, um, <laughs> well, you and me both. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so 
what I'd like to do then is, is, is kind of open it up really and, and, and let people ask their questions and what sorts of things they would like. So have we got any, anyone wants to ask a question? Um, so we asked Dave this four years ago as well, um, Dave Gibbons when he was here. So if you, somebody sends you a, an email yes, and, and, and it's, it might even be solicited, like, oh yeah, send me about that. Yeah. So then, you know, the end done reply, we asked him, how long should we leave it? Like two weeks, six, you know, it was a good amount of time. Was, that's not too soon, but it's not like, you know, you've given up sort of thing. What would you say would be a good ballpark for that? Before checking back in yeah, with them. Yeah, oh, did you get a chance to look at it? And, um, I would, I bet most, I would, I would just assume all editors are different, so that's probably not a, a good sounding answer. Um, I know a lot of editors that don't get back to people right away, and I think that's a common thing. I don't do that, because I don't, for one thing, I, there's two different kinds of people. People who have inboxes that have thousands of unread emails, and I don't know how that works. I used to date a girl that <laughs> had thousands of unread emails. And I like to try to get mine as close to zero as possible, because that's how I get stuff done. Um, and so I try to get back to people right away. Sometimes I'll get back to people the day of or an hour after. That doesn't mean it's going to be positive, though. Most of the times I'm going to be turning stuff down, and I'll turn down stuff three times a day usually. If I don't, I'm going to keep something on my radar, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be able to hire someone right away. Because most of the times I'm working on what I'm already working on. Um, I'll probably bring in someone new like, I don't know, maybe four times a year. So it's not often. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. But um, I would send in your uh, email. Um, it's always usually good if the editor's anticipating it, because if they've never met you before, they're probably more inclined to get through it right away or not even look at it, because um, they're really busy. Um, but uh, if you have met with the editor before, um, send your email, and uh, I would hope that they get back to you right away. And if they don't, um, I would suspect that I would uh, I'd give it a month. Um, and my guess is you might have an editor that still hasn't looked at it after a month if they haven't gotten back to you. But at least you waited a month. Yeah. So if you waited a month, uh, and they expected you to send that pitch or inquiry, then it's on them for not having gotten back to you. Uh, they um, had taken a long time, so they might be more obliged to be nicer and take more time because they made you wait. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's always probably best to try to um, talk to an editor before sending them something. That's not always the case, but um, it's usually pretty helpful just because they usually have so much happening. I mean, my inbox every day, I probably get four to 500 emails. So you're deleting through a lot of things really quickly. So it, that email needs to be something special to make that editor slow down. Um, uh, it's worth saying that Dark Horse does have a submissions kind of a general submissions policy. For, we do. Uh, um, I don't know if that these days would be the best route. Um, those will usually get reviewed by an intern or an assistant editor. And that's probably once every one to two years we might find someone okay. from there. But 
I think submission uh, piles these days um, for all publishers are, it becomes a little more rare um, to approve projects through there. It's not impossible, it's just a lower priority at the publishing house. Um, so going to events like these are great opportunities to meet editors and publishers. Um, I usually just recommend going to the small shows. Um, going to a San Diego uh, Comic-Con mm-hmm. or New York are uh, probably, they're f- a lot of people. Sometimes they're fun, but it's not a good opportunity to get hired because most of the stuff happening there are movie trailers um, and looking at celebrities and getting lost in crowds or standing in line. Uh, which is not that fun. Uh, but you're not really going to have an opportunity to talk to a creator because they're busy, they're working a booth and selling books, and they really don't want to look at art at that point. Um, but smaller shows, like, they have downtime and they can have coffee with you, and um, it's just a, a much better opportunity to um, to get them to remember you. So... Uh, one thing I will add as well, um, I, having worked with a number of editors, uh, I've had people have often said to me, "Oh, I emailed editor X, who I also work with, uh, with samples, and I've heard nothing back." And I said, "Well, I'm submitting pages on a, on a daily basis, and I'm also hearing nothing back. So if I'm not getting a reply, you know, don't necessarily take it to heart that you're not getting one. But also do bear in mind that, yeah, from the licensor." Or from the editor. Oh, from the editor, yeah. yeah. Um, so, because some editors... The other thing to sort of bear in mind is, as you said, you've got 30 books. Yeah. You know, a lot of editors are sometimes juggling enormous numbers of pages all at the same time. And sometimes, um, if you're a very safe pair of hands, it's kind of like, here's the pages, I've uploaded them onto the server. If, if you're... You know, some editors I've known have only got in contact when there's a problem. So yeah, and it's usually it'll be like thirty books, new books a month, mm-hmm. and they're all at different stages, and they all have different schedules, and they all have different parts that you see at different times. So this issue on this five issue series, I'm getting layouts in at this point. I'm getting pencils in at this point from this thing, and I need a cover for this thing, and like it's a spider web of different pieces of a book being turned in and they all need to come out at a particular time so the editor is constantly juggling um, and that's the part that I kind of like I found that I'm pretty good at it um, but it keeps you busy so sometimes it's hard to just kind of break through to get their attention uh, and you know like I like I said earlier it helps to just try to before sending them a second email or uh, sending them a message online or anything, just like think about their time. And uh, uh, there are some comics creators that have emailed me constantly who will probably just not get hired because I've never worked with them before, but they'll email me every two weeks or so. And sometimes I'll have to actually say, like, you got to stop. I'm not going to be able to hire you because you're filling up my inbox and I can't look at your art anymore. Um, and then they'll keep doing it. And I now they just go to my junk email because uh, I think they, there's some folks like that that will just, uh, they really want to get as many gigs as they can. And I think they're not just doing that to me. They're doing it to lots of different 
editors, but I would suspect that they're driving all those editors crazy because you don't want it starts to become like spam. And it, I, there's a there's a human being sending me that, and so I'm I consider that. But at the same time, like I gotta work on what I gotta work on, and it's just kind of distracting at this point. So really try to limit your emails or your, your methods of contacting an editor in a very specific, concise, patient way. They're busy, and. Uh, and then you should be busy too. Work hard on what you're working on and try to really think about what you're working on, uh, why is what you're working on important uh, before you send it to an editor. And an editor really, if you're going to email them, suspects that what you're sending them is not really advice but a pitch. So don't send that pitch until you think it is ready for review because I've had lots of pitches that are not ready or just incomplete. They'll just be three pages in the beginning of a story. I don't know where it's going to go, and I'll ask them where it's going to go, and they don't know yet, and that's a warning sign. Mm -hmm. So um, you need to know your story very well. Um, not like you know every single line in it, but just know what you're doing with it and why someone will actually buy it or enjoy it that you don't know before you send it to an editor. And don't send 40 pages of something either. Send three pages. It doesn't need to be super long, but um, show them where everything's going to go in three paragraphs. That's fine. Just show them what the story is. So. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Good question. Any other questions? Um, yeah. It's more of an editor's question than an artist's question. Um, you're talking about you know, shuffling 30 books or whatever. Do you have a system for that? Do you have like a a spreadsheet or the software that you use to keep track of where you are? Yeah. Things are at different stages? Yeah, Dark Horse is actually has a huge staff for like a mid-sized comic company. There's over 100 people that work there. There's over 20 editors that work there, which is way more editors than a lot of other comic companies. I think that's more than Marvel and DC. Um, and we all work on different amounts of, of titles. Um, we have a scheduling department that has three people in it. Um, so I don't know how it works other comic companies, but if it's a creator-owned comic, I'll ask the creators when they think they can turn in certain things. So the artist will say, when can you turn in pencils and inks? Like, how many weeks per issue do you need? Uh, and they'll tell me that. Um, and same with the writer, I'll, I'll ask them. Usually a writer needs a month per issue. Um, and then I'll ask the colorist and the letterer and the cover artist and I'll get all those dates um, and I'll send those uh, to our scheduling department who will assemble it through an Excel sheet and give that to me and I'll run that by the creative team and if they're like, yep, looks good, then that's when it's going to come out. And uh, through the course of a project early on, I'll kind of keep an eye on it if stuff's starting to not come in on time. And we, if we haven't announced the book yet, or if it hasn't been solicited in the previews catalog, um, I might suggest on pushing back the schedule because it looks like we're going to have some late issues. So I'll just kind of monitor it just to see if everyone's doing okay before we actually need to say it's going to come out at a specific time. And I'll usually add uh, some padding to the schedule as well. Um, just a few extra extra weeks between when I get the final lettered colors in and when I need to send files out to a printer. 
so there's a lot of different stages, but um, yeah, we have a great scheduling department that helps me make it look fancier. Yeah, so it's not just me like emailing a lot of different dates either. Like it's it's pretty organized. So. No, I, was, I would say that's very good because uh, the, the question I often get asked is, are you available to do this book? Yeah. And the first question I have to ask is, well, how many pages is it and when do you need it by? Because the answer varies. Yeah, um, tomorrow. If it's tomorrow and I've got to do 22 pages, well, I may or may not have that time at this moment. Yeah. Um, but of course, if it's, well, it's 10 pages and it's needed in two months, well, you know, so it, it's... The, the time and the quantities make such a difference and having that communicated up front um, is helpful because in the past, particularly when I was starting out, I've said yes, absolutely yes, oh, thrilled and then the, 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 um, the breadth of what's been asked for suddenly appears and you go, oh, okay, well I'm not going to sleep for the next 10 days and that's fine and you get it done because you've committed to the, the deadline but it's that the difference between, you know, because I, I, one thing, Personally, I think it's very important is never promise what you can't deliver. So, um, you know, one only project I think I've ever had to hand page or say to someone, can someone do a bit of this, was over Christmas. I got very ill and during, through a fever, I was doing an annual and I said, there's four pages in this that's done by another artist. Could we also get another colorist to do that? This was weeks before the deadline because I might be able to get all 40 done, yeah. but I'm definitely not well. And I think it's fair. I'd rather put that there than the book, you know, risk the book being late. Um, I think communication is quite important as well. In terms sure, of being honest is great advice because um, if uh, you have a working relationship with an editor uh, and if you're late constantly, uh, they're probably less inclined to work with you again. Um, because, like I said, there's a big pool of people to hire from, and if you're constantly jeopardizing a project, um, why should the editor go back to working with you uh, when there might be someone else that can get uh, the art or the colors or the letters in on time who might be even uh, less expensive than you're charging? Or, I mean, you're thinking about the finances of a project um, and also the ability to get it out on time. Um, and so how are you as the freelancer, the creator, going to work hand-in-hand hand with an editor to meet those goals is important. So just be honest with yourself. I think it's good advice on how quickly you can get something to, and the quality is still good. There we go. So one more quick question. It's a really dull question. Yeah, no worries. Um, it's about, um, obviously, licensed books paid on a page rate basis. For create-your-own projects with dark books, What's the situation for the creative team now? I imagine it's probably not exactly the same for everybody. And sure. It's, and it's different thing. And I know the Berger books have sort of got their own thing and within Dark Horse. So what's yeah. the scenario with a creative team that comes to Dark Horse? Because if there's if they're not going to get paid to do a creative a creative book up front, then they'll do it their image, won't they? So I guess yeah. So what's the advantage, I guess, of doing it with Dark Horse? I think uh, the, uh, all the deals at Dark Horse for Creator on are different. And I think at Image as well, some of them are different. As uh, I know that uh, Image has a high back end for those creator-owned books, but there's usually zero pay up front as an advance. And some of the higher-rung creators do get an advance from what I understand. So it's kind of the same deal. 
um, in order to keep those higher end creators working for a publisher, they need to get paid because uh, they've worked their way up to that point. Um, but newer creators, I've, I've worked on a few uh, projects recently with some new creators, and they've gotten a, a good advance for um, their new projects. Um, profit splits, the percentages split between the publisher and the creators vary on each project too. So it's not really, there's not an exact answer. It depends on, for me at least, before I make an offer for a book, uh, who the creators are and, and what the book is and uh, how promising it looks. And then I'll just try to come up with an offer and negotiate it because it's not, whatever I say is not final. It's meant to be uh, uh talked about with me and the creator and I'm not here to uh, s screw over anybody or, or make a bad deal like I'm trying to champion something for you and what's probably different with Dark Horse as opposed to other publishers is that when I get a project and I think it's worth doing that's not the final say I then pitch the project to Dark Horse for you so I become you in a way taking your pitch and then I have to go in front of a committee and make the case why I think this book can do well at Dark Horse. So that's another thing to consider is that it just needs to be good enough that uh, I'm not being um, just humble about it. Like I think it's good enough that I can make a case for it like almost in a courtroom experience where there's the people that are going to give me a yes or down vote on us publishing the book. And it's not the easiest thing, but, um, yeah, so sometimes the work just needs to speak for itself, which is probably kind of vague, but, yeah. Thanks, that's good, that's good. Yeah. So okay. what's your uh, success rate then? Of getting stuff through? Recently it's been great. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I've been there for 10 years now, so I think that's helped. Um, and my track record's been pretty good. Um, so... Yeah, I think the last 10 things I put through have gotten approved. But then again, like I said, I'm usually rejecting stuff all the time, and I'm usually pretty quick about it because I like to get back to people right away. So I usually am turning down things three times a day. Um, so it is rare um, when something's coming my way that I'll say yes to it and I'll take it to the next step. And when I take it to the next step, the shot of getting it through is pretty high. Um, but... Uh, it, it's not going to happen often. So, okay. Anything you'd like to say, sort of generally in conclusion? Um, well, I'm very grateful for being here. Um, I haven't gotten to see too much of the city yet, but from what I've seen, Birmingham is a wonderful town, and I'm very grateful for being here, and I've met with a few of you so far, and uh, I've seen a lot of very promising uh, work, and I look forward to meeting more of you, and, yeah, I'm just very grateful to be here. Thank you very much for coming and chatting to us this morning.